Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could have made them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him, just as the scriptures predicted. This is God's holy word. If you are standing, you may be seated. Good morning, church. So sorry that we were not able to meet this morning. We made the call on Friday afternoon, and man, it was smoky, and the air quality was horrid. And so, um, yeah, we are sad to not see you face-to-face this morning, but thankful for modern technology, uh, that it doesn't hinder our gathering together to hear uh, the Word of God. So we're in Mark 9, 1 through 13 this morning, and remind you, as I do almost every time, Mark is written for disciples. It's a roadmap for the church and how to follow Jesus. And so in a time where we have so much confusion about how we can be successful, how we can be faithful and fruitful, um, Mark is this roadmap for the people of God and how to follow the way of Jesus, how to be faithful as Jesus was faithful. We've also been saying that Mark is a book of mystery. It is so filled with these mysterious references to Jesus and his identity. And Mark, though he rarely quotes the Old Testament, he is a master of the biblical text, and he is showing continually how God is cryptically and mysteriously present and bringing his kingdom on earth through the suffering, crucified, and resurrected Messiah, Jesus. Now, we've been noting for the past few weeks that this section is all kind of wrapped in together and centers around the story of a blind man who is healed, but he has a progressive healing. You'll remember it. Jesus meets this man And he takes him by the hand outside of the city and he touches him. And at first he only sees um, a blurry vision. He sees 
as he says, men, but they look like trees that are walking. And then Jesus will heal to touch him one more time and give full restoration to his sight. And it says that he saw everything. It seems that Mark wants to use this um, as a metaphor, a word picture of what's actually happening with the disciples. Disciples of Jesus at this point in time are confused as to, or they only see some of who Jesus is. They, they have a picture of Jesus, but it's only blurry. It's not fully clear and evident as to who Jesus is. And so, as we saw a few weeks ago when John was teaching that Jesus is clarifying to his disciples, yes, I am the Messiah, but not in a way that you think this Messiah will suffer from the hands of the religious leaders. He will be handed over. He will be put to death. But on the third day, he will rise again. And so, Jesus is clarifying for disciples what his Messiahship looks like and and who he really is, that he is, yes, the Messiah, the anointed king here to rescue, to bring salvation and usher in the kingdom of God, but he will do it in a way that no one expects. His ascending the throne will first include suffering. It will include death. And Jesus brings these paradoxical things together. He brings suffering and glory together. Not suffering, but glory, but suffering and glory. He holds them together. And so Mark in this passage is, is beginning one of his biggest themes of his gospel, and that is how Jesus' disciples are to measure power, victory, and greatness. And we'll see this in the next chapters to come, that the disciples are continually, and Jesus is continually talking about authority, power, victory, glory. What does this look like in the kingdom of God. And for Jesus's people, it is a way of enduring suffering patiently. It's the way of servanthood. It's the way of humility. And it is not the way of violence and assertion of power the way that the world does it. So let's look at this passage this morning. We're going to look at three parts. We're going to look at the apocalyptic vision. We're going to look at this phrase, listen to him, which is the phrase that the, the Father says from the cloud there on the mountain. And then we're going to look at the tension. So let's first look at this apocalyptic vision that happens here on the mountain. So the passage we're, we're looking at this morning is an apocalyptic passage. And I know that this is a very popular word right now, and we hear it all over the place. There's probably like a hundred titles on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu alone that have this title or theme to them. We use apocalyptic to describe what's going on in our county right now. We walk out in the morning, we see the sun, or we see the moon, and it's red, and we think, oh, it looks apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic. It's a very popular word. But in fact, the biblical idea of apocalypse and our American English ideas of it are worlds apart. When we speak of an apocalypse as Americans, we mean what I was just saying, a cataclysmic event, blood moons, tsunamis, firestorms. But when the Bible speaks of an apocalypse, it is speaking of a revelation and an unveiling of something that was previously hidden, not speaking of the end of the world or a cataclysmic event. And so here, 
in this passage, on this mountaintop, we have an unveiling of what Mark told us at the beginning of the gospel but has been veiled to the multitudes, has been veiled to the religious leaders, and veiled even to the disciples up till now. And that is that this lowly Jewish rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark has been dropping hints and hyperlinks to this truth all along the way. But it's here that we see that veil being pulled back and the true glory of Jesus being revealed. Mark wants us to understand and see this moment here on the mountain as a theophany of theophanies. Now, if you're not familiar with this term, a theophany is a visible manifestation of the divine, of God, the the most high God. And so Mark wants us to see this is the ultimate revelation of God here. And we know this because once again, Mark is dropping these hyperlink hints as the story unfolds. Jesus says in verse one of our passage that, they, that there were some present as he was speaking who would not taste death until they witnessed the kingdom of God coming in power. And then in verse two, it says, and then six days later, he led Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. And so this is directly connecting the transfiguration, what takes place next, to this statement that Jesus makes. And this is so in all four of the Gospels. Not only that, but this reference to six days later and being led up a high mountain is in fact a hyperlink to Exodus 24. There, Moses is called up to the mountain of God, but he is to wait six days. And it is on the seventh day that God gives him this theophany, that he reveals his glory to Moses. And it's there on the mountain of God in the wilderness, he sees the glory of the Lord. It's a theophany on the mountain. Now, interesting to note, isn't it, that Moses actually appears in this scene, and he is also accompanied by Elijah, who had a very similar experience to Moses. You might remember the story of Elijah when he is running from Ahab and Jezebel, that he goes into the wilderness. There he is fed by angels and by ravens, but then he is sent into the wilderness, and he comes to the mountain of God. And there, just like Moses, he is hidden in a cave, in the cleft of a rock, while God's glory passes in front of him. He has a theophany there. You might be familiar with this story. It's the one about the hurricane and the fire and all the wind and all this stuff. But it says, but the Lord's voice was heard in a still, small whisper, or it was heard in the silence. These men, both of them have a theophany on the mountain of God. And so Mark wants us to understand that this is similar to that, but this again is a theophany of theophanies, that this is the ultimate unveiling of who our God really is. Of course, these two men as well are representatives of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Moses foretold the coming of a prophet like him who would bear the final word to the people of God. We were told there, if the people did not listen to him, obeying his voice, they would be cut off from the people of God and the promises of God. Then, of course, there was Elijah. It was foretold that Elijah would appear before the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
the coming of the kingdom of God. And so both of these individuals are here on the mountain with Jesus, giving, as it were, their endorsement of Jesus and his ministry. And then as the scene comes to a close, they fade out and Jesus is brought front and center in the glory cloud. The voice comes from the glory cloud saying this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So what is happening here, right? Peter, James, and John are getting, as it were, a sneak peek into the future. Here on the mountain, they're seeing a vision of the vindication and glorification of Jesus. They're seeing the king. They're seeing the kingdom coming with power and authority. Later, Peter, in his second epistle, would describe this very moment this way. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's kingly language. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter uses majesty, honor, and glory. This is vindication language. This is glorification language. This is language of honor. And what we should see here in this scene, what we should understand this scene to be, is a vision into Jesus's future installment as the messianic figure of Daniel 7. You remember there in Daniel 7, we have the ancient of days seated on the throne, but it says, (coughs) excuse me, One, like the Son of Man, was brought to him on the clouds, and to him was given glory and power and dominion and a kingdom that would be an everlasting kingdom. He would rule over the nations. This is what we should understand as happening here. It's a vision into that future glorification, honor, and enthronement of Jesus. So why does this come at this moment? What, what, this, this just seems like a strange moment for this, this transformation of Jesus, this vision of Jesus to come. But I think it's important for the disciples to see and hear this moment, most likely because they were bewildered by the tragic news of the suffering and death of the Messiah at the hand of their leaders. John had mentioned this a few weeks ago, but we have seen Jesus, I mean, just taking ground for the kingdom of God in the first half of Mark's gospel. It's the unstoppable kingdom of God in every conversation that Jesus has, in every miracle he does, in every obstacle that he meets, he's unstoppable. And here, almost at the height of his popularity, of his power, he turns to the disciples and he tells them what is going to happen to him. And it's almost like it's Jesus telling them, hey, we're on a suicide mission. Because Jesus isn't just talking about his own suffering and death. He's saying, we're all going to suffer. We're all going to die. That's the language, at least, that he's using. And you know what? There were actually many messianic movements in that day, and all of them ended this way. They ended in the death of their leader, and they ended in the crucifixion of all of the followers. And so you can only imagine that for the disciples at this moment, like, wait a second, what is happening here? We thought we were here to overthrow the Romans, that we were going to, you know, take on Jerusalem, that we're going to install the Davidic kingdom, the Messianic reign. What is happening here? This moment would have been so important for that. 
The news of a crucified Messiah would have rocked their world. A crucified Messiah was a failed Messiah and a scandal. So this teaching of Jesus would cause them to question, cause them to question God's sovereign power, cause them to question God's goodness, his love, his justice, the the promises of God. What, What would happen to Israel? What would happen to the promises made to Abraham? How could God allow such evil? And so it is in light of all this that the apocalyptic vision comes. They need to see that the suffering one is vindicated, exalted, and enthroned as the victorious king. And I believe that this is something that we need to see even today. Now, something I've noticed recently in reading, I just finished reading through Revelation and was just so encouraged by it, but something that I had been noticing and another commentator pointed out, but there is a similar pattern that happens in the apocalyptic visions of the Bible from the Old Testament all the way to John the Revelator. And what we see is in the prophets, almost each prophet, one of the major prophets, has this moment where there's all of these kingdoms just in tension with one another. There's overthrowing of Babylon and Persia and the Greeks, and there's all of this stuff going on on the world scene. And amidst that, the prophet is ushered into the presence of God. He's ushered into the throne room of God. And what each of them see is they see that God is seated on the throne, that he is receiving worship and adoration, praise, that he is ruling and reigning. The kingdoms of this world are dealt with, whether that is a beast or it's... um, Whoever it might be, they're they're dealt with. They are judged. They're thrown into the pit. They're thrown into the sea. They are dealt with. And each vision has this aspect of the sovereignty and power of God amidst all the climactic things that are going, excuse me, all the chaotic things that are going on on the world scene. And what I've noticed about these is that each of these visions are given to the prophet in order that they might give a perspective to the people of God. As the world feels like it's just being plunged into chaos, it feels like kingdoms are just battling and destroying one another, bloodshed and evil and injustice and unrighteousness are at its zenith, the prophet is ushered into the presence of God, and he sees, no, God is seated on the throne. Nothing can stop the promises of God getting out to the world that he so dearly loves. Nothing can stop the plan of God. And we see this from Genesis to Revelation whenever we have a vision of or theophany of the Most High. Now, the fascinating thing is when we look at John's vision in Revelation, we have a mix of what, we have exactly what Mark is talking about here. We have this paradoxical vision where we have a slaughtered lamb that is being enthroned as the king, the victorious king of the world. And so John there has a vision of what Mark has been describing to us, 
that Jesus will suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, but he will rise again. He will be victorious. He will be transformed, transfigured, and he will rule and reign with power and authority over the nations. And as I said, these apocalyptic visions are given in order that the prophet or whoever is receiving the vision might share it with others that they also might have this hope, might have this perspective, that they would, in light of the circumstances, continue to give their allegiance to the king that is seated on the throne, to him alone, that even through suffering and death, just like the Messiah, that they would be faithful even unto death. The vision is meant to bring shape to their lives. And Peter writes this way in his first epistle. He writes to the church about the living hope that we have. The vision gives us the hope, the strength that we need to endure whatever evils, suffering, or obstacles lie before us. And I think that this passage comes at just the right time and moment for us because there are, as we've been saying, so many discouraging things that we're dealing with at this moment. From the pandemic, to politics, to fires, to just our own struggles, whether that's in our workplaces or in personal relationships, in our homes. There's even the coming transition for our church, our family leaving. This is all heavy, difficult things that we are having to deal with as a community. And I think it is so vital for us in this moment to see the apocalyptic vision that will give hope to our lives. And that is this, that the suffering Messiah, the slain lamb, our great shepherd is enthroned as the victorious king over all. And that the sufferings of this life, Paul says, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. But that suffering is also the way that God leads us to maturity, to patience, to the character of Christ. That suffering is actually the way that God brings beautiful, ripe, luscious fruit to our lives. And I believe that that is what God is doing in this moment, that he is pruning, that he is purging so that there can be great fruit that is born in this next season. But we must have this vision to sustain us, to give us strength for this road of suffering that we are on, that is ahead of us. And so as we collectively journey this way, we must remember it's the way of the cross, it's the way of suffering, but it leads to resurrection and it leads to vindication. So that's the first part, I think, of what's going on in this passage. It's an unveiling of the true glory of Jesus. It's the future of what will come, but the path there is suffering. It is the cross. And then the next thing that happens in the scene is this message, listen to him. Now we know in this scene, Peter has his own ideas of what's going on on the mountain here. Peter has his own ideas of how the kingdom comes. We've already heard about that. And in one sense, Peter's right. He recognizes uh, Jesus as Messiah, that he is the Davidic king. And even here on the mountaintop, I think that Peter recognizes the significance of this event. I think Peter sees that it is a vision of the king and the kingdom. And I think Peter thinks, this is it. 
the kingdom of God is here. And so we're just going to set up camp here and, you know, maybe we'll attack Jerusalem from here. It doesn't tell us exactly what he's thinking, but he blurts out his plan. He wants to set up camp. He wants to stay there. Peter's idea is of a kingdom without suffering. It's the crown without the cross. And as we've noted before, and John mentioned a few weeks ago, there was no understanding in the first century of a suffering Messiah. Quite the opposite. The Messiah was the conqueror. He was the liberator. He was the son of David. He was like Judah Maccabee, who would violently overthrow the enemies of the people of God and usher in the kingdom. But... What the divine voice from heaven says here is, listen to Jesus. And I think that this is so vital for us today as Christians, Christians throughout the century. We can make the Bible say many things. We can get a lot of ideas. We could read the Old Testament and think that what God wants us to do is go out and actually have a physical war, a fight with people who are not followers of Jesus. You could get that from the Old Testament. But what it's saying here is saying, hey, all that has come before It centers on Jesus. You want to know what God is like. You want to know what God's plan is. You want to know what you are to do with your life. Look at him. Listen to Jesus. That's what we're being told. What does God look like? What does God's Messiah look like? How does the kingdom come? Listen to him. What has Jesus been saying? What has Jesus been doing? Well, we've seen that Jesus' version of the kingdom of God is very different from his contemporaries. And it's different from our ideas of power and kingship even to this day. Jesus isn't talking about their violent politics and hostile takeovers. He's plundering the kingdom of darkness. And he's talking about the kingdom of God being like seed. We've talked about this before. Jesus isn't keeping up with the beloved traditions of the Jewish leaders. He actually is purposely going against them. He isn't giving honor and care to the religious system and leaders of the day. He's giving it to the poor. He's giving it to the possessed. He's giving it to the disenfranchised and outcast, the Gentile, the tax collector, even prostitutes. Jesus isn't talking about violent death to his enemies, but his own violent death at the hand of his enemies. Listen to him. Listen to him is what the voice is saying. And this exhortation has bearing upon all of Jesus's words, of course, but has particular relevance, I think, to the new instruction that Jesus had just given his followers concerning the necessity of his suffering and their participation in his humiliation, suffering, and death. So what does that mean? It means at least this, suffering Nonviolence and faithfulness to the end is the way of Jesus and the way to follow Jesus as his disciples. And there can be no doubt that Mark intended for the early church to take this particular word to heart and to wrestle with this hard truth that God calls us to victory and glory through suffering, through bearing injustice bearing wrong, bearing evil, and even to respond to it with love, 
forgiveness, grace, and reconciliation. He calls us to follow Jesus to the cross and on to victory and glory. Now, here's a little fun fact about uh, teachings in the New Testament. The New Testament highlights Jesus' nonviolent response to violence as a pattern to follow more than any other aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. It's fascinating. When you go through all the epistles, this is what the writers keep pointing to. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was mistreated, he did not mistreat others. He was non-violent in the face of horrific violence. He suffered at the hands of Rome at the hands of the religious leaders. See, we, church, need to give all the more attention to listen to him. A huge mistake of the church in history, and I think especially the Western church, is that we have not sat long enough with or thought long enough about our nonviolent master and king. We have not taken Jesus' kingdom manifesto seriously, and by that I mean the Sermon on the Mount. We have actually gone along many times with the way of the world, the way of violence, and the way of the dragon, the way of the beast. And we need to listen to Jesus. We need fresh ears. We need fresh eyes to see, to hear what he is saying. Why? Because, as Preston Sprinkle says, we live in a culture where all forms of suffering are avoided, or at least medicated. He says, if I get a headache, I pop a pill. If I get hungry, I immediately eat. If I feel cold, I put on one of my many coats. If I get tired, I rest. If I catch a cold, I crawl into bed, call in sick, and pop another pill. And if someone thinks about oppressing me, you better watch out. Our culture gives us no categories to view suffering, and especially suffering at the hands of an oppressor, as victory. Our culture sees suffering only as defeat, as evil. It never sees suffering as a means of victory, and this is why we need to read John's vision about what's really going on from God's perspective to correct our American self serving, saying things like, I will defend my rights at all costs. We need to follow the slaughtered lamb wherever he goes so that we can reign with him in victory. Man, I feel like, church, there are many ways in which we, as, as American Christians, have been faithful to the way of Jesus, but I feel like a way that we just immediately it's like, oh yeah, Jesus, this, 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 and I'll follow him in all of these areas. But the moment I feel oppressed or even threatened, I get out my guns, I get out my rights, I get just in people's faces, and I am so quick to defend myself. This is simply not the way of Jesus. And there is nowhere in the New Testament that you can actually justify that mindset. It is 100% an American liberal mindset, and it is not biblical. Plain and simple. 
And here's the deal. I know that this will be very hard for some of us to hear, but we have to live in this tension. And that's the last point I want to make this morning. We have to live in this tension. As the disciples are coming down the mountain, they have so many thoughts and questions. They're asking about Elijah. They're asking about this, the suffering. But Jesus has his own question that he wants disciples to continue to wrestle with in light of what they have just seen. They've seen the vindication. They've seen the glory. They've seen the kingdom of God coming in power. But Jesus wants them to think about this. He says, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? How is this possible? How is this possible that this is how God wins the victory? How could this be a victory? How could this be the defeat of evil that God himself would suffer? Who would have believed, as Isaiah wrote, that this was the mighty hand of God? He was despised and rejected among men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was one from whom we hide our faces. We esteemed him stricken of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the sins of all of us were laid upon him, and by his stripes we have been healed. This is what was going on there at the cross. This is how God overcomes evil, sin, and death. Paul tells us this in Colossians. It's there on the cross as Jesus is being crucified that he actually makes a public spectacle of the principalities and powers. In his own death, he defeats evil. We've talked about this before. Jesus is the sin eater. He takes all of the evil and sin and just suffering upon himself and there at the cross he kills it he lays the death blow on it in his own body and i believe that this is how the kingdom of god will come as well and christians followers of jesus are called to follow in that same example we are never called to lift up our rights we are never called to defend ourselves never to do this with violence. We can speak truth to power. We can protest. We can do many things in the name of righteousness and justice, but we are never to be violent, ever. You cannot find one justification for this in the scripture. And so we have to wrestle with this as Americans. We have to wrestle with this when we do have rights in this country. But our allegiance first and foremost is to the king and to the kingdom of God. We have to wrestle with this. We have to live in this tension. And not only that, what we have to live in the tension that it is through suffering that our king entered into glory. And it's through our own suffering that we become like him. It is through our own suffering, as Paul says in Romans 8, that we share in his glory. I'll leave you with just a quote from Michael Gorman, and then we'll close just with some application. Michael Gorman says this, Weakness as humans measure power and weakness is the way of God and the way God operates in the world. To live in a way that corresponds to this reality may indeed be paradoxical, but above all, it is faithful and it is true. To seek power as humans measure it is not merely a mistake. Listen, church, it's not just a mistake, but it is to betray and renounce the gospel. It is important, therefore, to note that the New Testament does not understand the gospel as power and weakness, but power in weakness. 
Because followers of Jesus are living out the kingdom of God in a world that is still under sin, death, and the devil, it makes us very difficult. Because injustice will happen to us. We will be taken advantage of. We will often be despised and rejected. Though we live in this tension of the already and not yet, God's kingdom has come, but is not fully here. We do so according to the way of the cross in hope that evil will be resolved by God in the future. That God, just like he does on the mountain with Jesus, he will vindicate us, he will glorify us, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like Jesus' glorious body. But in the meantime, our living cannot violate our non-violent, self-giving, God-obeying love of the cross, which determines the structure and fabric of our existence day by day. Listen to him, is what the voice says. Listen to Jesus exclusively. He's the teacher. We've been saying that. He is the rabbi. He's the final word of God to us. We must listen to him and follow him as we live in the tension. Following Jesus in the way of the cross and on to resurrection glory. As we see in this incredible apocalyptic vision, the end is already fixed. The crucified one is enthroned. He reigns forevermore. The new creation is coming into being. But as C.S. Lewis so wisely said, meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is a Monday morning. We have to live this out. We have to live out this tension, working out the details through the contemplation and meditation of Jesus and his life, his words, through the application of the Spirit Amidst our community, we're being called to work out what this looks like in our lives, in our homes, in our jobs, in our personal relationships. So in closing, as we head into this week, as we reflect on what we've read and what we've heard, what we will discuss with our discipleship group, the question is, are we truly listening and obeying the voice of Jesus? Or have we like Peter, we have just one version of Jesus. We have the throne without the cross. We have the crown without suffering. Are we avoiding Jesus' nonviolent life? Are we avoiding what he says about the meek, what he says about the merciful, what he says about peacemakers, what he says about those who suffer for righteousness' sake? that they get a name among the prophets and the saints of old? Are we ignoring these things because we are so focused on our identity and rights as Americans, as American citizens? We have to wrestle with these things. Where is our allegiance? Are we being with our rabbi? Are we becoming more like him? Are we following him in his overall way of life? And a good way to know this church is whether or not we are truly listening, a good way to know this is if we feel the tension. Do we feel the tension of suffering and glory? Do we feel the tension of the already and not yet? I hope that we do. I hope that there is a piece of us that does not feel at, fully at home here in our American culture, but that we do feel as though we are foreigners, wanderers, citizens of another world. Because that is the way of Jesus. That's what it means to follow him.
to live in that tension, that we are suffering, but that this suffering leads to glory. So Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And Lord, I mean this metaphorically, but also literally. Would you disarm us, Lord? Would you disarm the ways in which we would defend ourselves, whether physically or mentally? The way, Lord, that we follow the way of the flesh, Paul lays that out so clearly in Galatians. This has no place in the life of the Spirit, and it has no place in the peaceful kingdom of God. And so, Lord, would we live out that proleptic vision, the already, but the not yet? Would we live out the peaceful, shalom kingdom of God, the nonviolent way of Jesus in the kingdom of God, here and now, even though we might suffer, even though it might cost us dearly, would we live above all faithful to Jesus, to his way of life? And would we be messengers, witnesses of another world, of a true kingdom where righteousness and justice flourishes forever and ever? And would we not compromise that message of your way, of your power, of your reign, of your kingship with the violent, oppressive, authoritative ways of the world? Give us grace. Give us power to live out this high calling as we follow the way of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.